morning. Matthew chapter 19, going to be starting in verse 27 and actually going through chapter 20 and verse 16. And I'll explain to you about that in just a moment. So Matthew chapter 19, verse 27, if you find your way there, uh, let's stand together for the reading of God's word. Again, Matthew 19, starting in verse 27. Then Peter said to him, Behold, we have left everything and followed you. What when then will there be for us? And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you that when you who have followed me in the regeneration, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you also shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or farms for my name's sake, will receive many times as much and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. And when he had agreed with the laborers for a denarius for the day, he sent them out into his vineyard. He went out about the third hour and saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And those, he said, you also go into the vineyard and whatever is right, I will give you. And so they went. And he went out again about the sixth and the ninth hour and did the same thing. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing around. And he said to them, why have you been standing here idle all day long? They said to him, because no one hired us. He said to them, you go into the vineyard too. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last group to the first. When those hired about the eleventh hour came, each one received a denarius. When those hired first came, they thought that they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. And when they received it, they grumbled at the landowner, saying, These last men have worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden and the scorching heat of the day. He answered and said to them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what is yours and go, but I wish to give to this last man the same as you. It is not lawful for me to do what I wish... But what is on my own? Or is your eye envious because I am generous? So the last shall be first, and the first last. You can be seated. This morning I want to preach a message entitled, But What About Me? But what about me? So we come to a very interesting passage of Scripture this morning, and I was sharing with with Pastor Wes and Pastor Ben uh, this morning that this is one of those texts where there's, there's several places in here where you begin to read uh, commentators and scholars on it, and uh, nobody can come to a clear agreement on a couple of the, of the ideas of what's happening here. And so we'll talk about those as we get there, but it makes it an ever more challenging text. But the broad idea and the concept of what Jesus is talking about here is what rewards look like in the kingdom of heaven, what rewards look like in the life of the believer. Now, in order for us to understand why we get to this moment, we need to take just a little trip back uh, to last week. Now, if you remember last week, if you were here, Pastor West did an excellent exposition of the rich young ruler. Uh, One of those most familiar passages about this young man who comes to Jesus really asking what, by by all standards, you ask any preacher what he would do if somebody walked up to him and said, Sir, What must I do to inherit eternal life? That's like the greatest thing that anybody could ever do and walk up and ask a preacher, right? Because that's just like, just laying it all out there. And so this man walks up to Jesus and asks him this question, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And so Jesus, knowing all things and knowing this man's heart, begins to point to the root of 
his life, that even though he's seeking eternal life, he wasn't really willing to do what is necessary to gain eternal life. He wasn't willing to lay down his sin and his pride and his greed. And so this man walks away empty-handed because once he realizes what the cost is to follow Jesus, he must give up everything. He must give up his wealth. He must give up his, his satisfaction in life. He must give up his prestige because those are the things that he worshiped. So everything that he was worshiping, he had to lay all of that down in order that his supreme focus in life could be Jesus because we can't worship anything else and follow Jesus. We can only worship him. So the disciples have witnessed this. They're standing there. They're with Jesus. They heard this young man came up, come up to Jesus. They heard him ask this question. Uh, and, and perhaps even in their minds, they're thinking, okay, here's how Jesus is going to respond. Because it's how most people like us would respond if somebody walked up and asked this question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Oh, we put your faith and trust in the Messiah. Put your trust in Jesus Christ and be saved and be baptized. But Jesus knew this man's heart. And so he ended up walking away brokenhearted, not receiving eternal life, not receiving the promises of God because he could not turn away from the idols in his life. And so Jesus points out this idea in verse 23 that it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Because he's talking about the unwillingness of people to lay down their idols, to lay down their sin, to lay down the things that they deem is more important and to follow after him. And the disciples were struck back by this. And verse 25 says that they were actually astonished and they asked Jesus this question, then who can be saved? If this is what it means, if this is what it looks like, then who can be saved? And so Jesus says, with people this is impossible. With God, all things are possible. So it arrives us now at our text this morning, understanding what the disciples had just witnessed was this rich young ruler. Now notice what Peter comes up to Jesus and asks here. He basically tells Jesus something that Jesus already knows, obviously, but, but he wants to emphasize this. And we need to always remember that when we see Peter speaking oftentimes brashly or, or off the cuff or in, in a way that we might be saying, okay, Peter, here we go again. We need to always understand that when Peter says this, most often he's speaking on behalf of the disciples as well as himself. He's not just the one guy who is always raising these objections. Uh, Peter is, is speaking on behalf of the disciples, and we can understand that in this text, text as well. Uh, because of the way that Jesus responds to Peter. He doesn't respond in a singular. He responds uh, with, a, with a group idea in mind. So the first thing that I want you to notice in this text is this declaration of sacrifice. This declaration of sacrifice, because Peter, watching what had just happened, hearing what Jesus had said to this rich young ruler, right? If you wish to be complete, go and sell your possessions, give them to the poor, you'll have treasure in heaven, and then come follow me. So Peter says to Jesus, Behold, we have left everything and followed you. So Peter looks at this situation. The disciples listen to what Jesus has said. They say, Well, Jesus, this man couldn't do it. He walked away. But, but we've done this. We've left everything and followed after you. And, and they have. Now, it might be very easy to look at the disciples and think, well, you know, really, what did they leave? I mean, these were unlearned men. These were poor men. But brothers and sisters, the, the amount or the value of what they possessed was no more or no less of a sacrifice than somebody who was a rich man. 
their willingness to walk away from a, from a small fishing job or to walk away from their family. Peter left his mother. Others left other parts of their family. They left their homes. They left their livelihood. Matthew walked away from a lucrative business. All of these things, they were willing to put all of that aside to follow after Jesus. They genuinely had made a sacrifice to come and to pursue Jesus. The, the amount or the value of what those things is insignificant. It was the fact that they were willing to say, I will lay all of these things down to come and to follow after you. This ruler was unwilling to do this, but Peter says, Jesus, we've done this. We've left it all behind. We've left behind family, friends, livelihood, and now here we are following after you. He, he's really kind of just, just declaring this to Jesus, and you almost wonder in a sense if he's, they're, as they're trying to reconcile this thought in their mind. You know, Peter's working through this. Okay, now, Jesus, what does this mean? Because I want you to notice not only is there's this declaration of sacrifice, but there's a question almost of selfishness. Now, sometimes commentators will disagree here on whether Peter was being selfish in this moment, but, but almost the vast majority of them agree that this was a selfish statement in the sense because Peter follows this up. This is a great, wonderful thing. If he had stopped and said, Jesus, we've left everything and followed after you. We're committed to this. We're ready to do whatever it takes. We want to show you that we are going to go with you to the end. But then he follows it up with this statement. What then will there be for us? Jesus, we've given up everything to follow after you. What do we get out of this? We've given everything to follow after you. What now is going to happen to us? Now, again, remember, this is not his question alone. This is the question of all the disciples. Because they've all done this. They've all walked away from things. They've given up everything. They're wanting to know what's going to happen because even though they struggled with the concept of what Jesus was going to do, they knew what he had been saying. And it wasn't exactly what they wanted to hear. They had given up everything to follow after Jesus because they saw him as this great leader. They believed in him as the Messiah. They believed in him as the Son of God. But as we've talked about countless times, the disciples thought, as most every other Jew did, that when the Messiah arrived on earth, he was going to establish an earthly kingdom. That he was going to go into Jerusalem, take Jerusalem back over from the Romans, establish his earthly kingdom, and begin to rule and reign in that generation. And so that's, as they, even as they get closer and closer to the cross, the disciples keep having this thought in mind, but then they hear Jesus keep saying things like, I must go and suffer and die. I must go lay down my life. I must go sacrifice myself. My life must end. And so they keep hearing these things from Jesus. And as they get closer and closer to the cross, they begin to realize more and more often Jesus is serious about this. He, he's really committed to this idea that he's going to Jerusalem and he's not coming back. And so now they're beginning to question and think about this. Well, Jesus, if we have given up everything to follow after you, what does that mean for us? What does that mean for those of us who have, who, have, who have departed from our family and our livelihoods? How are you going to take care of us? What will we get in return for our obedience to you? And notice Jesus gives them here in verse 28 a promise of reward. It's beautiful here. Notice there Jesus said to them, this is how we understand that Peter's speaking on behalf of the entirety of the apostles and not just himself. Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, that you who have followed me in the regeneration when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you shall also sit upon twelve thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. 
And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or farms for my name's sake will receive many times as much and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. It's always good when we read a promise from Jesus and he says, truly there. He says, this is a statement you can trust. When Jesus says, truly, truly, or verily, verily, I say unto you, he's emphasizing, you don't have to doubt this. You don't have to question this. You may be uncertain about what's going to happen, but here, I'm going to give you the truth of the matter, and you can take this, and as the saying goes, you can take this to the bank. Jesus gives him a promise that, again, this is one of those areas that's, what I want to do this morning is kind of give you just the, the varying opinions on, on what this uh, what this means when Jesus talks about the, the regeneration and them judging the 12 tribes of Israel. What we can fully understand from this text and what sometimes is left to just uh, interpretation of different uh, scholars and theologians. Now, that word that is used there for regeneration means a, a rebirth or a renewal. So most commentators talk about that when Jesus talks about this idea that those who have followed me in the regeneration or that renewal is speaking to the time, of, it's, it's an eschatological reference. So when Jesus establishes his earthly kingdom, when the new heaven and the new earth comes and Jesus is established and ruling and reigning, uh, that, that that's what it's talking about. Uh, that this, this time of regeneration, when everything is made perfect, when Jesus is fully operating in his kingdom and sitting on his throne. Because there's a lot of language here that talks about ruling and reigning, and it's, it's really painting this picture of the authority that Jesus has, uh, of his glory and his splendor. And as he sits there and he rules and reigns, where the questionable part comes in is what does Jesus mean when he says, you shall also sit upon 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel? Now, we understand what a throne symbolizes. A throne symbolizes power and authority. Um, it symbolizes somebody who has been giving a, a role. So in the time in which Jesus lived, when he had a king, oftentimes he had judges who would sit with him and they would be sitting in flank to either side of him and they would assist him in various uh, occupations and various things that took place there in the side of the kingdom. And so what we understand here is that Jesus is painting a picture, not that authoritatively that the, each one of the apostles is going to sit on the throne in that day, but that they're going to be recognized and giving honor and dignity for the position in which they have for the sacrifices that they made, for their willingness to follow after Jesus, for their willingness to do what we have been watching them do chapter by chapter in the book of Matthew and what we have seen them done in various other books that we've studied throughout the New Testament. Jesus says there's going to be a special blessing for you guys, a special recognition of your sacrifice, a special recognition of your willingness to come and to follow after me and to serve me through the difficulty, through the good, through the bad, through the ugly, through the joy, and through the pain. He says, I'm going to give you a position of honor. So it's a wonderful promise here. No doubt uh, the disciples, when they heard this, uh, would be taken aback and, and thinking about this because what Jesus, this, this language would have meant even more to them than it does to us because we're so far removed. Uh, I think Pastor Ben referenced this a couple of weeks ago. We're so far removed from the idea of monarchy and what it means to be under a monarch and have that kind of power and authority. But for Jesus and the disciples, this would have been a very real understanding. And so for Jesus to promise them this type of level of recognition and honor would have just, just well, probably taken their breath away to realize, well, wow, Jesus, this, this is incredible. 
But we have to understand the struggle that also comes with those things because just a short while later, we're going to see the apostles continue to fight about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Even though Jesus has already made this promise to them now, he said, you're going to receive recognition, you're going to receive honor, you're going to receive this, uh, this special position. They're still going to continue to argue over those things. So Jesus gives this special promise here to these apostles, but notice he gives a promise not just to them, but to us as well, this promise of reward for those who will follow after him. Look at verse 29. And everyone, so who's everyone? He says, everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or farms for my name's sake. So this is speaking of us. This is speaking of the apostles. This is speaking of of every Christian who has ever lived and ever will live. Those who have left and forsaken and pursued after Jesus. He says they will receive many times as much and will inherit eternal life. Now think about this. If you look at the reference passage of here when Luke relates this story in chapter 18... Uh, He includes the words that you receive many times as much now in this life and in the life to come. So Jesus here is promising that when we sacrifice something for the sake of the gospel, it is not a loss to us ultimately. That God will make up for it in some way. Now sometimes those things will be made up for us in the rewards that we receive when we get to heaven, but sometimes God will reward us here in the earthly presence. Sometimes God will bless us later on in life. We won't see it in the moment. It may not be for days or hours, weeks, months, or years, but God will see fit to reward us in due uh, promise as to what He gives us here. Now some translations say we'll receive a hundred times as much or a hundred times fold. Many times as much, I think, probably is a better translation of that because Jesus is not literally saying that if you give up this amount of money, then you're going to receive a hundred times back in reward. Okay, this Jesus is not preaching a prosperity gospel here. You know, He's also not saying that if you give up one mother, you're going to get a hundred mothers in return. So he's saying that if you sacrifice, if you give up, if you lay down your life, And you're willing to say to your brother or your sister, I've got to serve the Lord, and regardless of what you think, I'm going to be obedient to Him. If you say to your mother and your father, I've got to serve the Lord, I've got to be obedient to Him, even if you cut off my inheritance, even if you disown me from the family, even if you cause me to lose my job, I'm going to follow after Jesus. Jesus says that you'll receive many times as much in this life and in the life to come. And you'll also, he says, will inherit eternal life. That's the ultimate. I mean, let's be honest. It's it's, It's great that Jesus says that we'll receive those things now, that he'll take care of us, but ultimately it's all about what he has promised us, that we will receive eternal life. Because that's the most blessing, the most gracious thing that God can give to us is that eternal life. There's a beautiful picture, I think, here that is also demonstrated by what it means to be a believer in Jesus Christ. Because your family may disown you. Your spouse may leave you. Your parents may hate you. Your children may have nothing to do with you if you pursue after Jesus. Now, it's sometimes difficult for us in an American context to think about that. But for our brothers and sisters in Southeast Asia, for our brothers and sisters in China, they know very, in a real sense, what this means. That if they become a Christian, 
Their children may never talk to them again. Their spouse may just, you know, like cut them off. Their parents may remove them from the family. But they're willing to do that. And so how, when Jesus talks about receiving many times as much, then what does that mean? Well, think about the context of what God has created in the church. Because what we have in a church is a family that is actually stronger than a blood family. What we have inside the church is a group of people who are actually should be closer to us even than our very own flesh and blood because we are part of the family of God. And so you might lose your parents, but you've gained a whole other set of parents inside the church. There are other men and women who can come alongside you. You may have lost your siblings, but you find more siblings inside the church. Uh, One commentator pointed out, and I've heard this said so many times before, but the one beautiful thing about the church of Jesus Christ is if you are a believer in Christ, there is nowhere that you can go, really in a sense, on the face of the earth, where you do not have kinfolk that live there. You can find a brother or sister in Christ, wherever you go, and you have unity and love with them, even if you've never met them before, you have a special connection with them that enables you to call them a brother and a sister. This promise of reward, Jesus says he would give to them eternal life. William Barclay points out that he who shares in Christ's campaign will share in his victory. Because ultimately, this is the ultimate reward, is eternal life. And Jesus says, no matter what you have to do, no matter what you have to sacrifice, no matter what you have to lay down, the ultimate promise of my glory for you is eternal life. But then Jesus finishes this last statement by saying, saying, many who are first will be last, and the last first. And when you read that, you end there and you ask the question, because that in in your Bible, that's the last part of, of chapter 19. And you ask the question, well, what does that mean? Well, this is one of those situations where we have to remember that the Scripture references, the the chapter numbers and the verse numbers are uh, are not without error. They were put in much later on. And there are times and places where we see that they could have been divided up a little bit better. And this is one of those places because if you skip down with me again to verse 16, you see Jesus repeat that same line. So the last shall be first and the first last, which helps us understand And what Jesus is doing is bookending this parable here. Uh, Matthew is bookending this parable to help us understand that now, as he's explained this idea of rewards and what it means uh, to be a follower of Christ and the things that we receive, he's going to explain it to us, what it means for the first to be last and the last first. And what we find here in passage, in, in verses 1 through 16 of chapter 20, is an illustration of God's sovereignty. So let's look at it again at verse, uh, chapter 20 and verse 1. It talks about the kingdom of heaven. is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. Jesus over and over uses these um, agricultural references and, and parables. It was because it was the easiest way to teach those who were listening because it was something that they could, could, could understand so clearly. Because everywhere they looked, they would see a farmer. Everywhere they looked, they would see someone growing grain or growing grapes or or raising sheep. It was something that was easily understood to them. And so Jesus points this out. The kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in his morning to hire laborers for the vineyard. So the Jewish work day was divided uh, into, uh, it was a 12-hour day and divided into segments. So it started at 6 in the morning and went to 6 at night. 
So when this landowner goes out, it's a little before 6 o'clock in the morning, and he finds laborers, and he promises him, if you'll come out and work for a day from 6 to 6, I'll pay you a denarius. Now, denarius is not a whole lot of money in today's standards, but in the time of Jesus, it was a one day's wage for a Roman soldier. So it was a very generous amount that this man was willing to pay these servants to come out and work in his vineyard. And what we see happening here in this moment, this landowner would have servants who worked for him on a regular basis. But when the time of harvest came for grapes in the land of Israel, it was very close to the rainy season. So they would always have to harvest the grapes in a, in a rather quick manner in order to try to avoid the rainy season so the grapes would not rot there on the vine. So it was very common for these laborers to be standing around in the city square, the landowner to go down, find men who were willing to work for the day, pay them, and to come in and assist the men who already worked for him. So as he goes down, he promises them an entire denarius for a day's of work, and they agree with that, and they go out to the vineyard and begin to work. Then Jesus says about the third hour, which would be around 9 o'clock in the morning, he goes back down to the marketplace. There's still men standing around. He says, well, you men go and work in my vineyard, and I'll pay you what is fair. They don't agree, this second group of men. They don't agree on a set wage. He just says that I'll pay you what is fair. Most likely, they had seen this man before. They knew what he had paid the others, and they trusted him. So they said, that sounds good to us, and let's go get to work. The scripture says that he did the same thing about the sixth hour, which would have been around 12 o'clock, halfway through the workday. And then he went again about the ninth hour, which is around 3 o'clock in the evening, and did the same thing. So all throughout the day, he's going back into the city. He still sees men standing around. He says, go work for me. I'll pay you what's fair. We'll settle up at the end of the day. And then it says around the 11th hour. So this is almost to the very end of the work. This has been 5 o'clock. They have one more hour to work. He goes out and he finds still men standing around in the city square. And he hires them and sends them out into the vineyard to work as well. Now verse 8 tells us that evening comes and the owner of the vineyard sends his foreman over to pay them. Now, it's interesting that in this time, everyone was paid at the end of every workday. And the reason for that is, is that most of these people were living day to day on their wages. They, if they did not make money that day, they were not going to eat. And so, in fact, the Old Testament has laws that lay out that a worker is to be paid at the end of every day in order that those who were poor were taken care of and did not have to suffer from day to day. So this man calls all those in. He calls uh, his, his foreman in, and he tells him to pay it in a rather unusual manner. He tells him to pay the ones who came at the end of the day first and then move backwards. So these men come in. And those who are hired about the 11th hour, again, these men have only worked one hour. And the foreman has been commanded to give them a denarius as well. One hour. And these other gentlemen have worked an entire day, 12 hours, and they receive the same wage. And so notice what happens. Verse 10, when those hired first, they thought they would receive more. But each of them also received a denarius. So you can imagine, right? These men have worked all day long, and they've seen these other guys come throughout the day, some at 9 o'clock in the morning, some at 12 o'clock, some at 3 o'clock, this last group at 5 o'clock. And they know what they were promised early in the morning. They were promised a denarius for a day's amount of work. 
And so here they are. They watch this group who've only worked an hour come up, and he watches the foreman hand this guy a denarius. Now, you, in the, now, maybe you're more holy than these people were. Maybe you're more holy than me. But if I were one of these men, I'd be thinking in the back of my mind, well, man, if he's going to pay them a denarius for an hour's worth of work, what's he going to pay us? I mean, we're going we're gonna to walk away with, with probably you know, 10, 11, maybe 12 denarius. And then... It finally comes down and he hands them the single denarius and say, these, these men are incensed. They're outraged. They're grumbling. And they're saying, these men only worked one hour. Look at verse 12. And you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden and the heat of the scorching day. They're like, don't you understand what we've done? We've been out here all day long. These men have only been out here an hour and they were out here in the coolest part of the day. We've already been out picking the crops all day long, picking grapes and burdening, shouldering on our backs, carrying them over out of the vineyard. It's been scorching hot all day. But if you know anything about the land of Israel, that the heat and then the wind combined can make for a miserable experience. He says, how then would you make us equal with them? And so the landowner responds to them and he says, friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Said, I've done nothing wrong. This morning when you went out to the vineyard, I promised you that I would pay you a denarius for a day's work. You agreed to that. The end of the day has come. You've worked all day. And I'm giving you exactly what I promised to you. Verse 14, it says, take what is yours and go. The idea of the language used there is, is either that they had laid it back down or that they're standing there holding it in their hand. And he's like, take it and get out of here. You have what you were promised. You have what you were supposed to be given. He says, but I wish to give to this last man the same as you. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with what is my own? Or is your eye envious because I am generous? So shall the last be first and the first last. He says, it's my money. He says, I promised you a denarius for an entire day's labor. Because that's what an entire day's labor is worth. He says, if I choose to pay a man who's worked only one hour of the day the same amount of money that I paid you, what concern of that is yours? It's my money. I can do with it what I want. So let's look back at this passage. And I want you to look and understand, Jesus here is not just telling this story just for a cute example of, uh, of, of anything, but he's really painting a picture of the glorious sovereignty of God when it comes to the Christian life, the calling of Christians, and the rewards that we receive. Now, it's obvious when you understand the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner that the landowner is God. So God is the landowner, and he has gone out to hire laborers in his vineyard. The labor is the gospel task. So God has given us a task to do, and so he has gone out, and we hear the idea of hiring laborers. That is his calling. He's calling people unto him to go to work in the task of working in the vineyard because we are the workers. Now, when we understand that we are the workers, we understand that Jesus is helping us to see in this passage that people are called at different times. Some are called first in the morning. And some are called at the third hour and at the sixth hour and at the ninth hour. And some even in the late hour of their life. But everyone who comes into the kingdom of God is promised the same thing and receives the same thing, and that is eternal life. 
doesn't matter whether you become a Christian at the age of five or whether you become a Christian at the age of 95. The promise is, is that if you come into the kingdom, the wage is the same for every single one of us because of the generosity of God. He says, I have promised unto you this wage. And he says, I will give this thing to you, which I have promised you. And he says, if I choose in my generosity to give the same to the one who's only worked an hour as the one who's worked 12 hours, that is no concern of yours because I can do what I want with what is mine. Brothers and sisters, aren't you grateful and glad for that this morning? Some of you in this room became a Christian at a young age, and some of you became a Christian at a much older age. But the glorious thing is because of God's graciousness and mercy and love and generosity that the gospel promise is the same to all of us, that we all receive eternal life in the kingdom of God. The payment is presented here as God's sovereign choice. God, no one of these, he was not obligated to any one of these workers in the vineyard. He did it all of his free will and accord. He blessed them and gave those things to him. Now, all of us receive the same reward. Seniority in the kingdom of God does not mean that you receive more honor. So if somebody's been a Christian longer than somebody else, it does not mean that they're going to receive more honor or glory. Because what Jesus is pointing out here at the very end, where the first shall be last and the last first, he, he ties all these two things together. He's helping us understand the idea of how God calls and chooses and how God uses people inside the kingdom of heaven. Because the disciples were focused on the fact of who was getting in first, of who had more authority and power. And Jesus is saying, you don't need to worry about that. You need to understand that everybody who's coming in receives the same promise. You're all going to receive eternal life. What I do in the middle of that with people is up to my own choosing and up to my own decision. Some who are the last into the kingdom of heaven will be the first in the rewards that they receive. Again, we're not talking about eternal life. We're talking about the, the blessings that God uses. To every one of us, we'll all receive that promise of heaven. But God calls some people to a higher responsibility. God calls some people with, with higher, or gives them, uh, by, by earthly standards, greater talents. Not every person on the face of the earth, will have a ministry like the Apostle Paul. But some will. Not every person will be called to the mission field like Adrian Judson. But some will. Not every person will, will have a, a lifelong legacy like Charles Spurgeon did. But some will. Some people will live a very short life and accomplish more in their short life than some people who live a longer life. I always think of, of uh, Jim Elliott and Nate Saint who were very young men when their plane crashed there in South, uh, South, uh, South America and who laid down their lives for the sake of the gospel. Very young men who were committed to the cause of Christ and their life lives on after them for years and years. The testimony of their life and the faithfulness and the rewards that they received because of their obedience in such a short amount of time. And then some will live long lives. But it's all up to the choice of God. But all shall receive the same promise of eternal life. So the question that Peter asked is, what's in this for us? And Jesus said everything. You don't have to worry about what happens in this life. He said, "The ultimately, you need to be worried about what's in the life to come. And you're going to receive the promise of eternal life. I'm going to grant to you the greatest thing that we can hope for and long for. Remember we talked about this early on. 
in the book of Matthew is that the promise of eternal life is the one thing that Christians receive from God that no one else on this earth can take away. Our possessions can be taken away. Our family can be taken away. Our reputation can be taken away. But our eternal life can never be taken away. And Jesus said, you could give up everything on this life. He said, but you have the promise of eternal life that I'm going to give to you. And he said, and not only eternal life, he said, but you don't even have to worry because even the things you have to give up, he said, you'll receive a hundredfold of those in return in this life or in the life to come. Brothers and sisters, God has given us a wonderful promise in this text. That no matter when we are called to Christ, that we all receive the same promise of eternal life. And that God will use us for His glory and His kingdom. I think some people get discouraged because they say, well, if I'd only become a Christian at a younger age, I could accomplish more for the kingdom of God. God can use you in the short breath of the end of your life just as powerfully as He could have used you through the entirety of your life if you're willing to give yourself to Him. Some of these workers went to the vineyard at 6 in the morning and some came at 5 in the afternoon. But they were all given the same reward because they were all willing to go and to put their hand to the task and to serve the master. We should be encouraged by this text as well because we see that it's all on the basis of God's sovereignty. These vineyard workers didn't go to the master's house. He went to them. He found them, and he called them, and he put them to work. If you're here this morning, it is because God has called you and chosen you, and he has put you to work in the kingdom's work. The thing that we need to avoid this morning, brothers and sisters, is to not be envious of the work that God calls others to do. It's very easy for us sometimes to look around and think, well, I wish I could have a ministry like that person. I wish I could do the kinds of things that they do. I wish that I could be as, as successful in, in, in evangelism or, or teaching or whatever it is that they may be able to do. But brothers and sisters, God has called each one of us to a specific task. He's given each one of us specific giftings and responsibilities and talents. And it's not for us to worry about what everybody else thinks. It's us for us to worry about, is the master satisfied with our work? These men were working in the garden. Some of them were, again, there all day, some there short day, but all they were doing is said, I'm going to do my best, work my hardest to make the master, to make the landowner satisfied. And that's our calling, is to work and to give ourselves to the work of the gospel, not in concern of our, what our neighbor thinks or what the church thinks or what anybody else thinks, but what does he think about what we're doing? And we have this wonderful promise that God has given us here. Let's pray together this morning. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for your word. And Lord, we acknowledge this morning that sometimes we are tempted, as the disciples were, Lord, to think about too much about what we're going to receive instead of 
trusting in you and your faithfulness. Father, we're thankful that for most of us in this room, being a Christian has not meant giving up family or giving up our jobs or giving up our reputation or our livelihood. But we know for many around the world that exactly has happened to them. And Father, we also understand that in a very real sense that could happen to us as well in the future. But Father, what a joy it is to see in your word. Lord, that ultimately we have the promise of eternal life, but even more so, Father, that you will take care of all the other things. And that the joy of our reward is not found in material possessions, but is found in your goodness and faithfulness to us. Lord, help us to trust you more each day. Lord, help us to be as the workers in the vineyard, Father. Lord, giving ourselves to the task, giving ourselves to the the hard work, knowing that in the end you will give us exactly what is good and right as this landowner did. Father, we pray, God, that we will be obedient to you in all things. And we ask this this morning in Jesus' mighty name.